Hello and welcome. Welcome to the Earth Sea Love Podcast. This podcast is for and about women of colour and our relationship with nature. Hosted by me, Cherie Mack. The Earth Sea Love Podcast is committed to exploring the experiences of women of colour with Mother Nature. We want to provide spaces where the hidden voices in the environmental and conservation conversations can explore their relationship with the natural world. Inspired by our time spent outdoors, we amplify the voices of women of colour, our stories, our conversations, interviews, photography, writing and artwork. We'll be exploring our legacies, histories and memories which have had an influence and effect upon how we perceive ourselves within the natural world and within the environmental and climate justice movements. Welcome to the Earth Sea Love Podcast. The Earth Sea Love Podcast has been made possible by the funding from National Lottery Heritage Fund. Thank you. Hi, hi. Welcome to another episode of the Earth Sea Love Podcast. And this is the second episode this week. Yay! Um, and this is a really good episode with the lovely Sarah Hussein. Well, let's just say Sarah touches upon because I am making no apologies for allowing Sarah to talk, to share her story. In this episode, my voice is minimal because Sarah has a lot to share. She has so much wisdom, knowledge and life's experiences to share that it was such an inspiration to be able to sit down with her and just listen and be educated. So, um, also, you know, this was recorded during Ramadan, so I really appreciated Sarah taking the time and the energy to share on this episode. Now living in Huddersfield, but was born in Doncaster, She's an educator and a writer and we touch upon her writing, we touch upon her education and how she's doing a PhD at the moment around ecological degradation and that's something that is so pertinent now, um, mid-July and you know we've seen the news, West USA heatwaves extreme records of high temperatures this has been caused by human activities human exploitation and human interference really with the natural cycle of this earth and um, and anyone who's out there denying that this heat wave um, which has scorched the Pacific Northwest, which is killing thousands, thousands of different species of marine wildlife and human beings. They need their head testing if they're still saying that this is a, a what do you call it, a con, that there isn't climate change, climate crisis. Let Sarah talk, because Sarah touches upon it, how we should be listening to women of colour around the world who have been in close relationship with the earth, who have been working in harmony with the earth, because here are the answers, here are the solutions to this present 
climate crisis. That's what climate justice is. It's the recognizing that mostly Western activity, Western exploitation, Western colonialization has caused the problems that we are in now in the Western world, but we do know that the global South has been feeling the repercussions of our actions, our ancestors' actions for decades, and no one's been listening to them or helping. So yeah, so you know, we touch upon that because this is this is part of Sarah's research, but how she's been looking historically within the social activism of women of colour in the Himalayas, in India, in the South Asia, and how they are um, have been tree huggers for so long and have just been written out of history. So it's really good to hear Sarah talk about that and the idea of these lack of women's voices in the ecological, scientific, forestry data. And why it's important to hear Sarah Sarah's voice is because she's actually changing the narrative. The stereotype out there about South Asian women are that they're subservient, they're silent, domesticated, you know, all those all those stereotypes that we are fed through literature, through the mainstream of what and how South Asian women are. But really it's a myth, it's a construct because when you hear Sarah speak, she does not fit that stereotype. She is a passionate, intelligent, articulate, big-hearted woman of colour. And it was such a pleasure to sit down with her and learn. So I bring this episode to you and please, let's just like open, open your hearts and open your ears to the message that is in there and how we can all, we can all become change makers. You know, she does, Sarah does mention that idea of like, um, we are the change makers by taking a seat at the table. That just resonates so much with me when I'm thinking of how long I stood on the sidelines and criticised organisations, mainly white dominated organisations for keeping all the power and not listening to our voices, voices of other people, other communities that do not look like them and then getting opportunities to sit at the table and then maybe maybe being full of fear maybe being full of the idea of failing or saying the wrong thing and then saying oh no sorry I don't want to sit at the table I don't want to have those conversations with you and um, that's not the case now but I know I've done that in the past and I know the difference between then and now and it's something that Sarah does mention is that idea of us being comfortable in our own skin us as people of color being comfortable in our own skin to the point that we no longer feel the need or fulfill that need of explaining or demonstrating or bending over backwards trying to convince persuade white people that we are worthy that um, we are human beings yeah because for me personally through the experiences that I've been through I am I'm more than comfortable in my own skin and more than comfortable in allowing others to be confused or or have whatever opinions they want of me it's I do not control or want to control or even have any influence over how anyone else sees or perceives me because I'm all right with how I see myself. I'm all right. Um, And there's power in that. And listening back to this episode with Sarah editing it, it's the case of like her wisdom and her shining bright light has come back to inspire me again and has reminded me, reminded me that I'm all right. I'm more than all right. And I hope that through listening to this episode that you can take away that message for yourself and hold that close to your heart. 
for yourself. And then hopefully once you've got that for yourself, you can start emitting it towards others. And, you know, just sharing that love, shining that light of love. Yeah. Anyway, enough from me. And let's get into this episode. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the Earth Sea Love podcast, um, and especially for being here during Ramadan. So, thank you kindly. And how are you? Yeah, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's a little bit tiring after sunrise because uh, I find it hard to fall back to sleep. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little tired, but it's okay. It's all, it's all part of the process. Oh, thank you so much for for gracing us with your presence. And I'm so I've been so looking forward to speaking to you because I haven't seen you in a while. I haven't spoken to you a while. So it's lovely to check back in with you and to see how you are. So what we usually start off with is just situating ourselves. Our listeners want to know where you are in the world and if you can if you can see anything of nature outside your window this bright morning. I, I can indeed. I, I'm, I li- I'm from Huddersfield, so um, and I live in a townhouse and on the bottom floor, just outside my uh, patio windows, um, they, there are lots of trees. Uh, yesterday I sat outside doing some writing um, and I can hear the birds. Uh, we've recently planted peppers and tomatoes. So um, I, I feel I'm, I'm really lucky to be surrounded by mostly the beautiful trees. Yeah, that so, sounds so beautiful. And um, I do envy you that um, outdoor space as I, I do live on a ground floor flat, but um, we don't have our own space outside. So that's why the sea, about five minutes away is I would say my sit spot, my favorite spot in nature. And it's interesting because you said that you were outside yesterday writing. And that is something that I love about this podcast. I get to know people that little bit better and that little bit more intimately. And when you sent over your bio, you had this long list of publications that you um <laughs> have penned so just tell us a little bit about yourself you say you're an educator and an author do you want to expand a little bit on that you know what do you educate you know what do you teach and and what do you write about well my my first passion was has has always been teaching Um, I I began teaching about 15 years ago it's probably a bit longer Um, and I've worked in all all sectors so um, I started off working in the primary sector then I moved to high school then I started moving, um, then I moved to college. Um, I taught in Kirklees College, ESOL, English to speakers of other languages. And that's actually when I was sort of first really inspired to, to write my novella, Escape from Syria. I was, I used to teach um, sometimes migrants, um, people who had fled from war-torn countries. And one day we were sat in the classroom and they were telling me about how some of them had to, um, you know, come on lorries and sleep on bin liners. And when they arrived to the UK, unfortunately, sometimes they'd be met with some forms of hostility when they went to the job centre, um, as though, you know, they were really, you know, they, they were coming here because they, they know, the kind of, it was challenged the idea that why were they coming here, but really they were coming here because they had no choice, a lot of these folk were even middle class, had really good jobs. Um, so when I was listening to them, I really, I, I really believe in connecting with my students. It really um, affected me. I, I wanted to do something. So I thought if I can capture their story, capture their voices, um, the world might be able to understand. So that was what what, what led me to write um, the first novella. I, I'd always been writing because I did a BA honours in arts of literature. I've got an English degree, but and I'd always sort of dabbled in writing. But I think at that point it was more the social justice side of um, the story that I, the, the the people's voice that I wanted to really 
bring out through that, um, which led me then to, I was, I was going to do an, an, an education master's, uh, but then I decided to do a creative writing master's because I wanted to develop um, my, my writing style and my, the technique. So then uh, that led me to then work towards writing a short story collection. Um, so the short story collection is a series of short stories. Um, it's called Sit Up, Stand Up, Speak Up. I, when, I, when, when my students are in a classroom, I usually tell them, if you have something to say, I always say sit up. And sometimes I ask them to stand up. And I just thought it was a powerful way to have each protagonist actually stand up for what they believe in. So the first one is set in colonised India in Kerala um, and about a young girl. Um, and, this, and the second one is, is called Predator versus Prey. Um, and it's um, kind of a metaphor of, of what happens between a, the viceroy and, and, and the servant, the servant maid girl. And then it's, it's a range of stories. I won't go into all of them. Um, and then after that, I, I've just been sort of, um, as well as teaching, I, and I then after I left, I, I worked at a training provider for a while and became a manager. I used to manage a traineeship program, but eventually I moved on to teach academic English at the University of Huddersfield, which is what I really love. I love the idea of working in an international environment because I'm meeting people from different, different nationalities. So I might have one year, there was 45 different nationalities. And I really feel that when you work with people um, from around the world, your unconscious bias is knocked slowly because you're having an opportunity to really get to know these people um, from all around the world. And it is just amazing. So while I've been working there um, and I've also kind of been um, engaging with the, uh, the English and Creative Writing Department at the University of Huddersfield. So I applied for a competition. Uh, I entered a competition. They were launching um, an anthology called Grist. They wanted to celebrate protest. So I decided to enter um, a story called You Would Be Free and One Day My Dearest India, informed by the life of Bikki Jakarma, who was actually a, a, an Asian suffragette. Um, and for me, it was just really important to, um, again, bring that voice, which I feel has been, there's been a lack of representation in, um, you know, in the voice of women of colour, I, th I feel in literature, in positive voice, the, posit the positive aspects of um, what, what, what women of colour have achieved. So I wanted to bring that out. And thankfully, um, um, I, had, I made it into the finalists and it was the, the stories included in the anthology. I've also, um, International Women's Day, there was a Miss Shakespeare competition um, and I entered that as well, um, and I was co commissioned to do some research, oral history research. So what happened was I decided to interview um, women, the first generation women who first migrated, um, and they worked in factories. And, and I wrote this story called, a monologue called Hope about a woman, I mean, it's it was quite an emotional story about when she first arrives and how she stood at the top of the escalators in her clothes and she has all the, the eyes are transfixed on her and how she sort of feels like an alien and how she's having to, again, work indoors rather than working outside because a lot of um, the, a lot of women who kind of arrived uh, were kind of planting outside and were cooking outside with their pots and pans and then all of a sudden to have packed spices from the shop. So I kind of captured this experience of this woman uh, from, the, from the interviews in this monologue and when it was performed on International Women's Day, it was really profound and I, I really... It was it was amazing to hear someone kind of like she, she was a trained actress from Bradford who who performed mm -hmm. it and it was I thought it was wonderful so yeah that's kind of been my my writing journey been for a few years now I'm working on a PhD I'm looking at ecological degradation in the Himalayan region from um, a post-colonial eco-feminist perspective so to unpack that um, it's I'm looking at how the women's contribution the women's forestry contribution um, has been really undermined so what happened is the English traders they set foot in the Himalayan region and what they did was they chopped down the trees um, uh, in order to um, you know transport that over to England and when they did that the land was destroyed uh, it, lay, it led to major landslides, but also it uh, deprived the women of fuel and fodder because these women, they relied upon the natural land. Eventually, these women, uh, they started to protest in what in nonviolent form of activism and they went on what you call Satyagraha which is what Gandhi has been celebrated for. But my research is really looking at the women's contribution because I feel in the um, nonviolent struggle and activism, a lot of the men have been, um, we talk about a lot of the men. Uh, we, our kind of history is focused on civil rights movements. Of, we focus a lot on the men. So my 
researchers really looking at these women because these women were active even before a lot of the men were kind of doing marches, doing treks. These women, um, later on then in 1970, the, the Chipko movement, the women trekked all across um, different regions and they, um, they embraced the trees, they hugged the trees. So when the axe men raised their axes, they, they said, look, we will not raise our hands in violence, um, but the trees provide for us and we will not allow you to chop them down. And um, this was kind of informed by a lady in, right back in Rajasthan, in, in, um, a, a lady called um, Amrita Devi. She basically, she, she gave her life for the trees because a man, um, um, a prince wanted to chop down the trees to extend his fort. And she said, um, I, again, I will not, we will not raise our hands in violence, but we will not chop out, we will not allow you to chop down the trees. And her and her three daughters, they were killed and all the rest of the 300 Bishnoi villages. So that's where the kind of right back to 1713 AD, that's where the, the idea of this connection to the natural earth began. And I've been researching, looking at the actual, the broadleaf tree. So what happened was the English traders replaced um, the, the trees with pine trees because it was better for them to export to England. But actually, what's interesting is um, these women had um, very important ecological insights. So the broadleaf tree, such as the banj, was important to that region. So regeneration was difficult because they were actually, because re- people assume that you can just plant trees, afforestation can happen naturally, but actually in certain regions, ecologically appropriate trees are relevant for certain regions in order for, the, in order for them to thrive. What's interesting is when I was young, you'd hear about a, a, a flood in South Asia and a lot of people would just assume that it's a natural disaster, but actually it's not, it's not a natural disaster. It's, it's due to our interference with the natural land because those broad leaves, um, they provide um, a moisture to the land and um, a leaf mold deposit and um, it's essential for for that land to for that land to have trees, especially because they have the monsoon season as well. Um, so I've been looking at the lack of representation in the women's um, ecological scientific forestry uh, voice. Because what happened was after the industrialization, is the men they started to portray the woman the the women which. Which it happens with women of colour generally, but my research is looking at the, the, the hill women of the Himalayas. Is they became the tree huggers, so they were portrayed as savage and backward. And um, the idea of modern scientific science, because it was linked with economic development, so people didn't want to really hear these women's voices. What they wanted to do was make money. These trees are making money, so why should we listen? Um, so they were kind of mocked and undermined. The reason that I feel this is relevant today is because we are in, um, you know, if you look at, the climate problem today and you look at environmental degradation if we actually just sit back and look at how you know the you know the, these women of these common colonized lands if we look at indigenous women um, you know from asia and africa these women had knowledge they they were connecting with the natural earth um, in, in a way that they would um, use the natural earth in a way that they were it, it would allow it to regenerate and they weren't exploiting it and I think we need to look back at the ways these women lived in order for us to encourage a sustainable future for us now. Um, so it's been really interesting because um, for me, when I look at, I'd like to produce um, some something creative out of it. And when I look at the literature when I was young, basically I would see most of the novels which are picked up by publishers would portray South Asian women as oppressed and the victimhood role was often um, really portrayed. Um, even if you look right back to the Victorian feminist literature, um, they would use their literature to portray the Indian woman, um, the, the, the saviour, you know, they, they wanted to be the saviour of this woman. So she was portrayed as a victim right from the beginning, even by other the Victorian feminist sister. She was portraying her Indian sister as, you know, this woman, this woman who needs, who needs saving. Um, so what happened was um, eventually this, this kind of representation you know, has become predominant. Um, so every book, uh, books such as Brick Lane, you know, who, which, which kind of, um, m- most of the books kind of show this woman who she, the, she can only kind of acquire freedom in, in the West if she adopts Western values. Um, but I, I, I want, I'd like to challenge this because um, 
actually that's not true because while um, the women were being um, accused of witchcraft here, the women in those regions were actually working for themselves and they weren't homebound. They were actually out there, you know, connecting with the natural earth, collecting fuel and fodder, going out, create, um, gathering food for their, themselves and their families and as well as um, protecting the natural earth. When I was young, I, I remember watching um, East is East and again, it was just the idea of forced marriages and this representation of this woman of not having a voice. But these are, but there were women, even you know, far back in, in as far back as the 1970s before that, who were active and who were they were social activists then. And I think that's quite amazing. So I, I want to be able to produce a piece of literature that will really um, create a positive representation of these women and um, I want for young women of color young women young women to see that there are you know positive role models out there and that they don't when I was young I didn't see that and um, it was quite had a quite a negative impact because even if you try I used to feel that when I tried to conform to to you know to to, to western values into being I was never really accepted. I experienced a great deal of racial discrimination at school. Um, I was the only South Asian girl. And um, although, I, although I'm light-skinned, they used to say to me that, oh, you're, you call Sarah and you're light, so, so you're one of us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they used to call me, you know, Paki, and I, um, um, I had my headscarf pulled off my head. And, um, and I think that really impacted me. I think really that's where my journey of seeking social, social justice came from, because I think, what happened is those microaggressions and those experiences, then they kind of stay with you. And while you're young and you can't really put names to those experiences, then you grow up and you think, well, I remember being young and I wanted to join in with my friends. They was dancing to steps and they turned around. And when I, when I, when I joined in, they, they started laughing at me, like as if to say, you know, you're a packy, you can't dance with us. And I, I remember it hit me hard that day that, well, no matter what I do, I'm kind of never going to be accepted. So there was a talent show, and um, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to my, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, stick to my roots and my heritage. So I sang. There's a song that um, the people sang to Prophet Muhammad um, when he come to Medina. Called um, it's about the, it's they kind of celebrate him coming. So I got up on stage in a predominantly it's in Doncaster in a school. I, I sometimes I, I, when I can't when I reflect, I can't believe I did it because it, I must have been brave at that age in year seven to get up on stage, and I just sang that song and I actually won the talent show. And I think from from a young age I realized like you know what it's okay for me to be in tune with my heritage that no matter what I do I'm not going to fit in there. So there was kind of a deep connection that I felt um, even though I'm third generation, so I don't feel like I had a direct connection because my mum, my my parents were born in England so I, I don't think they had a, a like because so, I, when I when I compare it to some people who I know who are second generation and their parents are direct who have come from for example South Asia Pakistan they have what kind of more of a connection but for me it was because I was third generation my parents were born here there was no kind of link my grandparents were even living in England so I had no link and no way of kind of connecting with that with, with that side so I, what happened was I really feel that through postgraduate study I was able to really understand um, British South Asian connections. But because before that, in school, again, there was no literature, no books. There was no way for me to understand. So you feel I've kind of my whole life have felt like a second class citizen, even though I'm British born. And I've kind of felt a little bit like rejected from my birth country. Um, and, I, and, and I can't and I can't, you know, I, I can't generalize and say that every experience has been like that. I've met some wonderful people. But a lot have a lot have been like that, and I feel like I shouldn't have to kind of downplay that to make few people feel better. Because I often feel, I you know, we have to do that, and sometimes uh, people of color to because you don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, you kind of downplay your experience. But it's unfair because this is my experience. I can't, I cannot hide away from that experience because that's in, it has informed my whole life, and um, I think that's informed my my choices. Um, for my you know for my children really because even my daughter now I feel that I don't want her to ever feel the way I felt so when she's going to a school now where she's seeing um, a range of people from different backgrounds she's happy and I, and I feel she's learning a lot more and she's a lot more informed and um, so I think those experiences when I was younger 
really informed my journey. Then when I, then what happened was when I moved to Huddersfield when I was about 16. And it was just, um, it was amazing because Huddersfield is a very different place to Doncaster. And um, I just met some wonderful people and I just felt a, a lot more of a sense of belonging because there was kind of a strong community here. And um, I felt the schools were more, the teachers were more informed. Um, I mean, I remember being, uh, I remember being a young girl in, in my school in Doncaster and um, the only ever piece of literature that was, was kind of presented to me was presents from my aunt in Pakistan by Maniza Alvi. And I remember when the teacher read it out, everybody just kind of stopped and sat staring at me. Even the teacher just kind of paused for a second. <laughs> and I remember just feeling like an alien in the, in the classroom. And I think maybe that's why I wanted to become an educator so bad because I, I, so badly because I felt like I, that is not how I would, you know, I would teach. And I think for me, um, I think I really, really ensure that I, I, I kind of plan my resources are, are kind of um, planned in order to meet the needs of every individual learner. So if I've got someone from Nigeria or someone from UAE, or if I've got someone from um, India, it, I'll make sure that everybody in my class, um, they are, you know, the resources are made so that everybody feels a sense of um, belonging. It's always such a wonderful environment when, when because of the pandemic, because we've been at home. I, I don't think the online experience is quite the same. Because I feel when I'm in the classroom and when we sat there, there's just this. It's such. It's just such an amazing a learning experience because as well as them learning from me in terms of academia, but I feel like I learn from them because they bring their whole lived experiences to the classroom as well. So it's just. It's just a really wonderful experience. And I think that's why I probably wanted to become an educator because I said, you know what, there's a way of doing it. And, um, you know, it's, it's the making students, like Maslow talks about the hierarchy of the hierarchy of needs, making sure students feel comfortable and safe before you can even begin learning. If you're making someone feel awkward, they're not going to want to learn. But I think with the writing, I think for me, writing is just a form of expression. Um, but this year I've, I've found it a little bit more challenging because when I first started writing it was more I'm just expressing myself but when I did my master's I realized that there were a, there, there were a set of rules and technical uh, things like showing and, and telling and point of view and um, you know using the correct tense and at, at the beginning I found it a bit frustrating because I just wanted to be free with it but why should I have to follow a set of rules and this is how you write but I've realized actually those rules are it's not rules it's just the way I train to become a teacher and the way you train to do something um, in the same way you're training to write so these are not rules it's just training to become so recently I've just been reading Midnight's Children um, Salman Rushdie's and he's it's just amazing he's writing the metaphors and um, the writing style. So I've been comparing different, I've been reading like lots of literature and looking at the different writing style. And it, it's, I realized that for example, when I'm working on my exegesis and I'm just reading and I'm, I'm paraphrasing and direct quotations and I find it easy, but when I'm, when I'm writing, I feel like I'm having to edit, edit at sentence level, at word level. It, each, it could be that one word in the paragraph changes the whole, the whole setting. Or it, so it has an impact on the, the writing as a whole. So, I feel like I've really developed and it's been it's been a challenge um but I think it's worth it it's you know you have for me life is about developing and just getting better and awesome Sarah I mean you know you're doing my job for me I just asked you <laughs> the one question but you've told us such a, a rich array of stories your stories other people's stories and when I say stories I don't mean that they're made up in that sense I mean it's like the narratives these these are what make us tick as human beings and you've just shared such an array and so you know we've traveled with you as well to different <laughs> countries and different time zones so thank you for that that open and an honest response and I do I you know I'm sitting here and I'm nodding along with a lot of the things that you've touched upon here and I'm not going to unpick, unpick it now because um, I'll do that in when I introduce this this episode because this is an episode that's just gonna just gonna run 
I'm not going to be interjecting. I usually get, you know, I usually get involved here. But I think it's really important that your voice is out there crystal clear. And that's why I'm also going to say I'm going to invite you back and then because we're having creative um, sessions on the podcast when we've got women of color um, writers sharing their creative output. And what you said there about changing the narrative about the South Asian woman, I think we need to have that voice here as well. We've got you as the real person, but then that imaginary um, South Asian woman who challenges the stereotypes that we are fed constantly, I think would be a powerful, another a powerful episode to have. So thank you for bringing that up. And I've just got a few other questions because we met through the research that was carried out by CPRE, which was a participant-led project, which was looking at diversity or why there wasn't the lack of diversity within the English countryside. We all had to go off and talk to our people in our own little small part of the world and then come back as a group and share these stories, share this research, and then work out ways to disseminate it. And what I want to touch upon is that you actually wrote an article from your research. Do you want to speak about that, which is on the the CPRE website, which I will link um, to their blog about it. But what 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 came out from your research that you actually shared in this uh, article? Um, I think being part of this project was um, I think it was really important for me because as soon as we, we, we began the research project, we were looking at barriers to accessing nature. I knew straight away that I wanted to interview women of colour because I, I, I again, I always feel that as women of colour, we, you know, we're always stereotyped and I, I sometimes I just feel that no one no one pays attention to our voice. I've recently been quite uh, just I'm just going off tangent, but just to make the point that I, I just feel like when women of colour are, are, are kind of given a voice, they kind of attack, you know, and, uh, you know, recently in the media, we've seen it with, a, you know, quite a few women who were in politics. And um, I just for me, I thought, you know what, I if that's going to happen, I feel like we have to take ownership of our own voices because, if people are going to misrepresent our voices, then, then we need women of colour who are listening to each other. So this was my opportunity to go out there and, and interview a range of women and bring their voice to the table. And it was, again, it was amazing because I had, you know, my, my, I've got a Caribbean friend who I interviewed. I've got a friend, there was, there, there was a range of women from a few different backgrounds. And what I asked, it was very, a very open conversation about how you feel, how they feel about accessing nature and I what was interesting was a lot of the experiences were very similar in that what really stood out to me was that they expressed this idea of really having to consider where they're going and the thought process that goes into choosing where they would like to go for a walk for example I call it the short risk assessment um and I, 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 which is interesting because I do that with my students, but the, but I feel like I have to do this risk assessment all the time when I'm taking my children somewhere. Is that, is it going to be okay to go there? Because will people be okay with my headscarf? Um, so what happened was a lot of these women were, were talking about this and about how they prefer to go to a local park rather than out to the countryside. Um, and, and it was really saddening because I, ha- I was speaking to some first generation people who had arrived to this country who had lived actually out in the open in, in you know, in, in the landscape where they were just surrounded by animals and fields. And then they'd come here to be in this little, they call it, you know, one of the women, she, she called the house like a little box where she felt trapped with the brick walls. And she said, I had no choice. I couldn't go anywhere because I didn't know where to go. I didn't know the language and I just had to work and get on with it. And I just, from from the research, I realized that there hadn't really been, um, you know, any anything in place to really help um, these women kind of draw them out of, because of, I've, I've heard, you know, the counter argument that, you know, the community, you know, people of color, their communities, they, they stick in their own communities and they'll integrate. But I think that's unfair because what in my experience of when you've gone out and what a lot of the women said is that when you're greeted with cold, hard stares, like, what are you doing here? it can really put you off, 
you when you go somewhere you want to feel at ease um, and also I think the women picked up on the fact that there were no facilities um, so sometimes you know in terms of food I mean not everybody eats bacon and not everybody eats certain foods and I think I think this that was um, certain, certainly something what, what, what I picked up on um, and what was also interesting when I talk about the dress I find the dress code um, yeah, because I, I, I feel that quite often the media represents um, the Muslim woman with her black veil as, you know, a depressive black, black veiled woman. But actually, um, obviously, um, the women across the world globally, um, not all Muslim women wear a headscarf and actually uh, everybody's got their own culture and the way the, the way they want to dress modestly. What I'd, what I'd found, particularly in England, in, in Yorkshire, was that one of, one of the women, she said to me that I feel like I have to change my scarf and put it and wear it in a turban westernized turban style in order to make people be more comfortable I, I might wear like a skirt and I might wear English English clothes and she says you'd be surprised that when in comparison to when I wear my native dress just people are a lot more uh, at ease and I, subconsciously I do that too you know I, I think about the color if I'm going to wear black black might make people feel uncomfortable so you know what let me wear something more bright because bright they, they won't feel it but it's sad that you know we have to feel like that because this is just a natural place of you know if you just want to go on a walk to the natural land you shouldn't really have to worry about these things but I think these are the things that um you know some people take for granted and and, and I know recently I feel like people have become very kind of um defensive when we when people talk about you know race and gender and I I kind of think that, you know, it's not really, people don't need to be defensive. It's an open conversation. And it's just that people are, are kind of finding the, the confidence to talk a little bit more about their experiences because they, we want change. And I think it's, it, rather than being translated as, um, you know, I'm not, we're not attacking anyone. I don't, when, when you talk about experiences and not attack, it's just talking openly about how we can improve the situation and how we can make, the situation better and how we need to be allies for one another and support one another to, to move forward but this project um the, the article i think was really a good way to bring out these women's voices and and i i, I was really happy with it and it was nice to be able to say well I, I went back to the women and obviously as well as interviewing them to go back and say well this is what i wrote and you know I, and, I, and they were happy that their voices uh, were out there and I'm so pleased that you got to write that article too, because I don't know about you, but many of the times that I do get involved with my community and are maybe tasked from a white establishment or a white organisation, I sometimes feel that we're going into our community and just taking um, and taking their voices. So then to come back and show this is where your story has gone for now you know this is just the beginning and and to show them that you know, we're not just taking that we're we're having this conversation and the dialogue and that their input is valuable and it's also getting out there and being amplified and I think that's that's why I loved I mean I did love the writing but I also I also recognized that it was also a gateway to be opening up that more voices can be heard. And I do take on board what you're saying about people being defensive. And I think it is because like, when we do share our stories and that's what we're doing, that's all we're doing, sharing our stories and experience. They get on the defensive because they, it pricks their conscience. They are actually able to feel something and recognize something. And it's something that they can't actually handle or describe or um, check themselves about because it's not a practice that is you know mainstream and it's not something that they've probably had to do before so being on the defensive is their natural the natural way of going to begin with and and we accept that but then keep keep listening keep listening keep having that dialogue and that just comes to my next point because we're billed, aren't we, to be talking to the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs next week, aren't we? Yeah. Um, and I don't know about you, um, but I, I'm not sure what I'm going to be saying. 
I probably need some help from you, Sarah, because you are such a shining light here. You are so inspiring me. And I'm interested, like, you're going to be sitting down with him, obviously virtually. And the 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 brief I've been told is that, you know, we're just we're just going to talk and he's going to listen. So have you thought about what you're going to be saying to him? You know, as you're saying, barriers to accessing the countryside. Yeah, um, to be honest with you, I've been more excited about this interview today. <laughs> I have, yeah, I, I, that's been kind of at the back of my my mind. Like the first thing was, you know, because we've been planning this for a while and, and I've been looking forward to it because, mm. you know, for me, like, human connection is important and speaking to people um, who really understand you, it, it's it's really good for your soul. Yeah. And I, I, as, as I'm getting older, it's really important to me to, 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 because before I used to feel like I had the weight of the world in that I used to feel like I, ha- I had to convince the ignorant to not be ignorant. But I found that in doing that, it's been draining me. So what I've, I, I, I read, I've been reading and I've actually been listening to the audio of um, why I no longer talk to, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, the book. And what she says is really important because what she says is that I she put the first uh, Facebook post out and she just said she was tired of explaining. So I don't really uh, I feel like I, I don't want really want to feel like when I'm if should next week come that it's a explaining. Yes, um, it's 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 an opportunity. I feel like it's it's an opportunity to share our experience. That's fine, um, but I'm not going to kind of feel like have high expectations in that something amazing change is going to happen because of 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 the gentleman for me I feel like we are the 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 game changers because we by taking a seat at the table we're making the change so I I realized that when I've when I was younger I when I've expected people to change or do something they've not changed it it's been me who's had to move forward and do the work in order to make my surroundings better. So I see this as an opportunity. It's come because I sometimes think, I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen the film Yes Man, or Jim Carrey's Yes Man. When you say yes, sometimes it's saying yes can just be a, an opportunity. But um, I'm just keeping my expectations from that meeting balanced and not getting too, too overly, overly enthusiastic about the, the outcome, basically. Yeah, and I love that attitude. And I do... I um, concur with what you're saying. It is an opportunity to um, share our experiences. Yeah, I, I, I look forward to sitting at the table with you, Sarah, <laughs> more than the Secretary of State, because sitting at the table with you is an example. You lift us up and you, you remind us, you know, because that has a a brilliant reminder for me. Yeah, I don't. I don't have to keep explaining myself, or I don't have to keep um, trying to convince you of my humanity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you, you know. Yeah, you know it. You know. It. So yeah. thank you for that, because I need. Because I think in my frustration, I yeah. I do get onto that point. That right? Okay. Um, well, I have to do this, and you know, I need to. I need to stress this that you need to you know and yeah it does wear you thin and wear you out and the you know the black fatigue is out there it's real it's not just another buzzword that we're putting out but thank you for that word because I've been feeling it but I didn't know what it was but now I do know I'm just tired so tired of the shit (laughs) you know what happened yeah. I, I, I did a talk on International Women's Day a few years ago and um, um, this young girl, she said to me, you know, how can I explain to people about um, my headscarf and how can I make them feel? And I said to her, I said, you don't have mm-hmm. I said, why is the responsibility on you to, feel, to make the white Indigenous counterpart or white counterpart feel comfortable? At the end of the day, you wear your you wear your headscarf, and that's fine. You don't need to explain. And she was she said, "Oh my gosh, like I've never looked at it like that." But I think we hold a lot of, you know, that responsibility on our shoulders. But it shouldn't be our responsibility. If somebody doesn't want to understand, then that's on them. You know, I, I, there's nothing we can do about that. But we have to we have to be comfortable in our own skin, um, and for for other people to actually respect us, we have to be comfortable in our own skin. Oh, so yeah. I, I've learned that over the years. 
Yes, and I'm with you. I'm with you on that, you know, with that maturity and with those, yes, that's, and there's such, there's so much power in that to us as individuals of letting go, feeling that we have to explain to others and also for us to become more comfortable in our own skins. And that is because we're not, we're not given that, that learning or information from outside. It has to come from within. And you mentioned the soul and that is where, where we need to peel back the layers of the experiences, the racism, the education, the white supremacy culture to get to that, that soul within, which is so beautiful and such a, such a light. And then once we tapped into it that ourselves, we can go around this, the, the world society shining our little light because we're okay with that. We're more than okay with that. We love that, man. We love that. Um, and you're such, such a light. And thank you for being on this podcast, Sarah. And I just want to finish. We started with where, what can you see of nature outside your door? Oh, and you've got your patio and, and you've been out and you've got the trees. But do you have a favorite, a favorite spot in nature that you go to regularly to fill up your pot, to feed your soul? Do you know, it is just outside my um, my bottom floor here, outside here. I sit here and I read and it's just secluded um, and I just love it. I just, I, I really, I'm a, I'm a private person who really, because if I go, if, I, I, as I said, there are certain apprehensions of going to certain places and uh, which I still feel need to be sort of um, broken down. So I don't, I don't really go too far out. And if I go to the park, I feel that I don't get my, my privacy so like I'm just sat here now and there's a little robin that's just flew by my window I just I like it um, I think I'm very uh, privileged to have this this to have this back garden and to have this space uh, I'm very lucky and I you know I, 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 I see it as a blessing so I make the most of it um, so yeah I have I have some chairs little chairs all around there and I just I love to just sit there on my own quietly sometimes with some music playing sometimes with, with a book and just to watch the birds and just, I love it. Just that peacefulness. Lovely, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Sarah. It has been a gift. It has been my blessing for the day. I've got a busy day of, of meetings and writings, but this has really set me up to be smiling for the rest of my day. So thank you, thank you for bringing your presence to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 